Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Rima Katz. In today's episode, we're delving into the shifting regulatory landscape and exploring how fintechs can anticipate and adapt to upcoming changes. By fostering a proactive mindset, fintechs can not only ensure compliance with legal requirements, but they can also seize opportunities for growth and innovation. Joining me today is Matt Heron, Director of Product Management at CSI, and Jennifer Pitt, Senior Analyst of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research. They're going to get into the importance of viewing risk mitigation and compliance as foundational elements of fintech operations, rather than just merely reactionary measures to regulatory changes. It's great to have you both here today. To start things off, Matt, let's take a look at the regulatory roadmap. How has the regulatory landscape evolved as it pertains to fraud prevention and anti-money laundering? Obviously, banks are well-versed, but what are the expectations among fintechs and others? Yeah, banks are, and I think this isn't going to come as a surprise to anyone, typically subject to stricter rules, more frequent regulatory scrutiny due to kind of their systematic importance. And they also have known consequences with sanctions for noncompliance. The regulatory landscape for fintechs is sort of in an emerging evolutionary state right now. It might sort of still be less stringent than banks, but as they grow and their services become more complex, I think it's an inevitability if they aren't already to be subjected to additional levels of scrutiny. If you look at FinCEN publications over the last couple of years, you started to see you know, the statement for banks and the statement for non-bank financial institutions and BFIs. It's almost identical at this point. There might be some nuanced language differences. You know, compliance is used for banks, whereas it's still a, a recommendation, best practice for NBFIs. But you know, AML programs, active transaction monitoring, KYC, they're very clearly telegraphing that the expectations are coming if they're not already there for those organizations. Matt, great points. I think we're also going to see a shift towards the FRAML framework, the convergence of fraud and money laundering as the two a lot of the times intertwined with money mules or predicate crimes. So I think regulatory aspects of fintechs are going to have to incorporate a FRAML framework, not only with the actual fintech products providing that, but also investigations on both fintech providers and financial providers. And I also think that security and privacy are going to have to be at the forefront of the regulatory discussion. There's been a lot of recent data breaches that we're all aware of, and we need to figure out a balance between privacy and security and customer convenience in the fintech space that's actually going to work. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's A lot of it is, while the time sensitivity between fraud and more compliance-oriented tasks might be you know, different, the data is largely the same. And so you know, leveraging the data for both is going to be critical. And so kind of intertwining, I completely agree, intertwining those systems so that at the very least, you have a holistic picture from a reporting and output point of view. And then you kind of tailor your strategies as needed within the single data model. Absolutely. If, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. For a lot of people, you know, regulation is like the only thing that moves the needle to force action. And I do get that. As someone who 
has sort of drank the Kool-Aid and is a true believer in security through good design. I struggle with people out there who don't share that view because we do need to be focused on how to create an ecosystem that keeps out bad activity, not because we're potentially going to get fined if we don't, though that is 100% true and will probably be more true in the future. But really just philosophically because it strengthens the space and it's fundamental to long-term success. I think it's good business. And, and so if, if you're going to be operating in a space that touches people's private data, touches people's money, by screwing up, you could cause real harm to a very important space. We have to think of security and data as a foundational part of what we do. And piggybacking on what you were saying, Matt, you know, fraud liability has historically not been something that fintechs have had to really worry about. What can they expect going forward? Yeah, there's definitely been an uptick in fines associated with things like, you know, substandard AML compliance. You can read that a lot uh, over the last few years. I try not to throw organizations under the bus, but I think the, the one that immediately comes to mind was Wirecard back in 2020 as kind of the most notorious. I wouldn't even want to like compare that situation with situations that others have faced where, you know, that's on the margins, you probably could improve. But that was really full-blown accounting fraud, allegedly, of course. But it really, it was, it was facilitated by inadequate controls and effective monitoring of transactions. That inadequacy from an active transaction monitoring and reporting at least contributed to that being able to be perpetuated. And so you see startups, you see upstarts who are really, they're kind of in customer acquisition mode. And so they're not necessarily thinking about these things, but, you know, subsequent fines, subsequent lawsuits, it really does have an impact down the line because they're not able to you know, keep going. A, a suspension of operations to a, a company that's 18 months old is essentially a death sentence. And so any organization in that situation is really has to be thinking, you know, what would happen if we were were to encounter that and try to avoid it on the upfront. And yeah, I think that there's also been a lot of fraud through different fintechs, right? We've seen the fraud, the consent orders come through banks recently, but there's also been fintech fraud and money laundering. You look at the NFT and cryptocurrency space, you look at some of the online platforms like Venmo, PayPal, and GoFundMe. There are a lot of fraud that's happening with that and customers are really not happy about that. So I think in the U.S., we're going to start to see some fraud liability shifts like there is in the United Kingdom. We're going to see it might be shared liability, but we're at least going to see everything kind of get back to a more customer oriented realm of servicing people. And if that means, you know, we give a partial reimbursement one time, then I think that's the general direction we're going to go in. Yeah. The contingent reimbursement model in the UK does feel like a template that's likely to be emulated. To your really to your point, one of the things I think is important is if you understand kind of the, the fraud mindset, the fraud perpetrator mindset. If you're a startup or a fintech that's that's starting to get in the space, you're generating buzz, you're out there marketing, like they notice that. They are paying attention to the space. And so you're new, you're potentially not going to be doing things as an as well as you could be as an established player. And ultimately, if they haven't tested you, they're going to test you. It's going to lead to kind of unwanted attention from the wrong sort of people. And they're going to poke around and see what they can get away with. The other really interesting thing, I think, as we sort of share or move towards shared liability, there is something that I, I don't think 
is being talked about enough, even in the UK. And it's around kind of these data pools, these social interaction portals, social media, even the telecoms. We've all probably encountered, you know, phishing texts, SMS text messages. Uh, They're trying to solicit information from us. And I think a lot of people don't even answer the phone if the phone number isn't already in their contacts because, you know, that has gotten so bad. Uh, And I do think that we probably need to involve those types of repositories, you know, the Facebooks of the world, the Verizons, the AT&Ts of the world, because they are part of the equation. Their platforms are essentially being used to facilitate a significant portion of this. And for whatever reason, either, you know, being lack of interest or potentially legacy architecture, they've been very slow to try to cut down on that type of phishing. It's so easy to spoof a phone number at this point. You know, why is that? I think we have to all kind of be on the same, you know, align towards the same goal. If I see a phone number pop up in my caller ID, I I really need to be able to trust that that's really that phone number that's calling. If we're going to do things like active monitoring and blocking bad actors and, you know, that type of thing. So I do, I I feel like that's just an underappreciated point that even in places where we have started shifting towards, you know, shared liability, their contributions and their participation in the ecosystem isn't always recognized. And I actually think the social media piece can be used to our advantage too as fraud professionals. And we're not doing that. We're just using social media to look, is there fraud? We can also use that for fraud education and to get the word out there about this is what to look for. This is the type of authentication you need to use. And we do need to communicate better with those entities to get that word out there. For sure. You previously touched upon security, which is like very top of mind, I think, for almost everyone. I want to talk about scaling for security. As organizations grow, how does this become more relevant over time? Yeah, any organization that's in customer acquisition mode, from a fintech to a neobank, any, I think this is universally true from a startup point of view. They're trying to onboard new customers. They know there's trade-offs in being too aggressive in their fraud mitigation. And so oftentimes they seem to err on the side of, we'll figure it out later and let's get the customer onboarded. Uh, And so, you know, I'm a huge advocate for balancing false positives. But if your organization is only focused on successful onboarding, it may be easy to sort of overlook some of the details around assessing risk. And so... We get it. Consumer pressure has never been greater. Essentially, there's a consumer expectation to be able to open a new account now in around like three minutes, I think is the most recent metric that I saw. And that makes every screen, every flag, every question count. So you have to be laser focused on the ease of onboarding, but you do still want to make sure you're kind of getting what you can on the upfront and leveraging data as much as possible, at least capturing data as much as possible. I think there's a a misconception, though, that identity fraud tools are solely an expense that takes away from the bottom line. If you think about kind of a hypothetical running 100,000 applications and your rejection rate is 15%, that's 15,000 applications. And if you calculate kind of the lifetime value of of a new customer at $500, just to keep the math simple, an improvement of 10% equals... 1,500 more customers that you're able to onboard. And so multiply that times 500 and you got $750,000. And the cost of an improved tool might be $50,000, $100,000. And so you've got you know an ROI that's very strong there, potentially 10 to 15X. And so 
it really does. And it's hard to do this after the fact uh, is I think the most important thing, you know, injecting that into your process two years in is going to be significantly more expensive and, and more challenging than if you do it from the onset. Yeah, Matt. And I think that fintechs and financial providers can really cost effectively do that if they just creatively shift around their resources. So if more resources are focused on the detection and prevention of fraud, you'll have less fraud to investigate. So you can shift some of those investigators toward the detection or shift your detection models away from people and shift it more toward the AI machine learning aspect, you know, once the security issues are kind of figured out. The other thing that I think is going to come really to a head pretty soon with security issues is mandating MFA. There are so many organizations that still either allow weak passwords or MFA is an option, but really having mandating multi-factor authentication for consumers and employees, I think is really going to eliminate a lot of the fraud as well. Yeah. If you Um, touch sensitive data at this point, (laughs) how are you not? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think going back to the data breach issue, again, we've seen a lot of data breaches and some of what's come out of that with the investigations is that companies are not securing their information well, or employees are clicking on that email or victims of social engineering attacks. And so I think making sure you're having end-to-end encryption with all of your data, all your information making sure security policies, compliance policies are in place and understood by all fintech and financial provider employees is going to be essential. Yeah, it's really important to be a good steward. We saw this in the card fraud space for a long time. Thousands of merchant breaches were happening in any given year, and it was leaking, you know, static card information. And, you know, that's like the banks and, and others were essentially eating those losses and merchants as well, the shopping, you know, where the, the information was being used at, were eating those losses, despite it being a hotel chain or a, you know, a completely unrelated website that was really the source of the information. Matt, so it sounds critical to think of risk mitigation and compliance as a foundational element rather than as a reaction to various regulatory changes or new mandates. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Risk mitigation and compliance are really about business success more than anything else. I think it's really important for people to think of it that way. Including them at the foundation of what you do is ultimately going to keep you from having to try to shoehorn some, you know, process in after the fact, either by regulatory decree or in the way in in the wake of kind of a major event, you know, a loss or a, a fine. Starting off with things like active monitoring from the start is going to be far easier. And it's going to have the added benefit of data that you can glean, you know, insights from into your processes as well. And so with any group, whether you're an established player or, or a fintech, emerging fintech startup, scalability and growth are important in everything that you do. And fraud mitigation tools, and if you do them right, can fit neatly into that thinking as well. And so I just think it's important not to think of it as you know, in either or type of concept, but starting it off is always going to be easier than trying to make it happen after the fact. Definitely. And I, just to piggyback off of what you're saying, part of the issue with being reactive is we're already behind the curve when we're reactive. So, you know, an incident happens and to learn from our mistakes, they make, you know, regulatory changes or implement mandates. 
and then we go on. Well, the problem is we're basically playing games of, you know, many games of whack-a-mole and we're behind the curve. Fraudsters are way ahead of us thinking forward. So I think one of the keys going forward is really going to be to hire forward-thinking people who can think, you know, several chess moves in advance on this is what fraud and money laundering are going to look like in the future, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And keep that perspective through modeling behaviors with monitoring software as well is let's get away from this single rule-based monitoring and instead go toward, let's look at accounts holistically. Let's look at fraud in the future, what it's going to look like and really focus our efforts on future. And then we won't have to worry about so many of the regulatory mandates that come down. We'll already be prepared for that. Yeah, the tools that exist today, thanks to things like machine learning, you know, discriminative AI have been well established in this space for over a decade. They, they scale really well, and it makes it relatively easy to filter through the noise and avoid a lot of manual processes. And so when you pair that concept with kind of the more recent trends in generative AI, model refinement operational tasks are getting more automated every single day. And that's not to say that this isn't going to take some level of true expertise. I'm biased, but fraud people, you know, tend to be some of the most creative people in uh, in the financial services industry. They tend to have a lot of deep insights in the organization. They know where risks are, but also when they're encouraged to kind of balance the risk with the business opportunity, they tend to actually develop really good acumen on what moves the needle from a revenue side as well. And so, you know, this is actually a, a great exercise if you're doing this right, uh, in terms of just understanding your operations and, and what your opportunities are. That's my shameless plug for all the fraud fighters out there. But I love the concept of enhanced intelligence, you know, using AI automation tooling to provide experts with experience and in human intelligence a better way of doing things, giving them the ability to kind of 10x their productivity. And so, you know, that's, I think, I really think it's important to think of this as, as really enhancing their capabilities and enhanced intelligence rather than true artificial intelligence, because you can't outsource this knowledge and expertise to a machine, at least not yet. Uh, but I don't, I really don't see that happening, even in the near term. Ultimately, this is going to require human creativity, human thinking for the foreseeable future. And I think that's where information sharing is really going to come into play. The need to balance how do we share information with all fintechs, all financial providers, and law enforcement while still balancing that privacy and security aspect for consumers and for businesses. That's going to be really important for us to figure out. If regulations need to be tweaked a little bit, that might need to happen. Maybe policies on information sharing that happens not in an official way, but sort of the consortiums that where we can share trends and maybe not PII and, and specific data, but things that will really help the industry and local jurisdictions understand where fraud and money laundering are and where they're going. Yeah. Bad actors love the, the kind of silo of information. They love that the financial services network across the board, no matter where you are and, and, and what side you're on, is a, somewhat afraid through regulatory policy to communicate and share information. And that's something we just have to solve. You know, tokenizing, anonymizing data, but, but sharing the trend creates a good type of consortium that 
all participants who are willing to provide data can also receive data. And that's, I think, in the spirit of collaboration, I think that's in line with even what, you know, the most ardent privacy advocate would be okay with. And I I think that's what fintechs are going to be really valuable for is being that intermediary or that product that can help financial providers, financial institutions with the information sharing to look at more of a holistic view. Part of the problem when we talk about risk mitigation and that we've always been reactive is we're looking at single transactions. We're looking at single customers. Everything is rules-based. Instead, if we look at everything more holistically using fintechs as sort of the intermediary and the products where several financial uh, providers use that, then I think that will help information sharing as well. Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and your perspective. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe and stay updated on the latest Payments Journal episodes. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues.